So some people think high impact philanthropy is about, oh, the big billion dollar gifts. And for us, high impact philanthropy can be practiced whether you have $5 or a billion dollars. Welcome to The Value in Giving. I'm your host and president of Vanguard Charitable, Jane Greenfield. The Value in Giving podcast gives us an opportunity to hear from leaders across the world of philanthropy. These leaders share their insights and experiences so that you're informed as you think through how to have impact with your charitable dollars. On today's show, we have Kat Roschetta, who is the founding executive director of the Center for High Impact Philanthropy, or CHIP as we know it. Welcome, Kat. Great to be here. So Kat, can you tell our listeners what is the Center for High Impact Philanthropy? And actually, could you even define what high impact philanthropy means to you? The Center for High Impact Philanthropy is based here at the University of Pennsylvania. And it was um, founded initially as a collaboration between alumni of the Wharton School, which is the business school here at Penn. But it's always been housed at the School of Social Policy and Practice. And we exist, our team works to provide two things to help philanthropy be more effective. One is knowledge about high impact philanthropy, how you can practice it, um, no matter how much money you have. So some people think high impact philanthropy is about, oh, the big billion dollar gifts. And for us, high impact philanthropy can be practiced whether you have $5 or a billion dollars. And we provide public information and knowledge to help philanthropy be more effective. And then the second thing we do, which is not a surprise because we're based at a university, is we teach. Um, And we teach graduate students and social impact analysis. But uh, probably for your listeners, what's more relevant is that we teach funders, family foundations, professional grant makers, principals, um, ultra high net worth donors, about how they can have more impact with their philanthropic activities. Now, your second question, what is high-impact philanthropy? Um, It means something very specific to us and our team. If I were in a room with your listeners, I would ask them, how many of you are interested in practicing low-impact philanthropy? (laughs) And not a single hand would go up. And and that's great. But part of the problem is, what are we all talking about? Like, everybody wants impact. Isn't that a good thing? Um, So when we at the team at the Center for High-Impact Philanthropy, CHIP, talk about high impact philanthropy, we mean this. Um, It's it's really four things. It's a focus on social impact. The second aspect of it is um, when you're practicing it, it's informed by the best available evidence, right? For sure, emotion and passion has a place in philanthropy. That's often what prompts us to want to do something. But practicing high impact philanthropy has to channel that passion by um, understanding what has worked and what hasn't. Um, The third aspect of it is we think about the economics of how you can get to that positive change. And then it's, it's about really lifetime learning, lifelong learning, because the positive change that donors are trying to affect today, reducing homelessness, improving health, ensuring equal opportunity for all, Right. Those are goals that lots of smart people have tried to work on before, and likely lots of smart people will keep trying to work on long after the donors listening to this have moved on. So it means learning from what has worked and not in the past and then trying to figure out how to do better. Well, that's really helpful, Kat, because uh, you're right. No one wants to be a low-impact philanthropist. 
But defining what that means and, and what that means to you, what you need to do is important. So Kat, you founded CHIP. What caused you to start this organization along with Penn? Um, before coming to Penn, I had worn multiple hats in the nonprofit philanthropic and, and social sector. And much like our founding sort of institutions, Wharton and the School of Social Policy and Practice, I had spent half my career in the private business sector and half my career in the nonprofit social sector. So there was something about CHIP that felt like it was bringing together all of that experience. And one of the things that I appreciated about CHIP and its mission, it was really about how do we bring the best knowledge from all sectors, from all disciplines. So that's interesting. So you have, you and your team have access to a fairly broad group of experts who can help to inform your thinking. Yes. If I didn't think Chip would be able to access those different perspectives, I don't think I would have felt so confident coming to Penn to launch it um, because I I know that that's what it takes to come up with philanthropic guidance that has to do two things. It has to be informed by the best available evidence, but it also has to be actionable. You know, an elegant decision that you can't implement in the real world, that's not something the CHIP team is interested in. So um, we need the input from all those disciplines, and that also has to be matched with an ability to engage with nonprofits directly, to engage with donors directly through our teaching. So you've been leading CHIP for, what, 13, 14 years at this point? That's right, yeah. And had a great background in philanthropy prior to that. Um, So you really had this chance to kind of look at the world of philanthropy, to see this sector and how it might have changed over time. From your point of view, how has philanthropy changed? And, And specifically, the focus on impact changed over the last, say, 5, 10, 15 years? 30 years ago... If you wanted to find information on a nonprofit, unless you already had a relationship to that nonprofit, you were a volunteer or a staff member or um, on the board, there was no way (laughs) to find out about the nonprofit. Um, Full disclosure, I I serve on the board of Candid. Um, Candid is the merger of the Foundation Center and GuideStar and is the biggest source of information on the nonprofit philanthropic sector in the world. And bringing together both sides of, of, you know, the foundation information and information on nonprofits, that was only created last year. And GuideStar did not exist, you know, 40 years ago. We live in an information-rich world, which gives us all, us meaning donors, a chance to be more informed, have more sources of evidence to make the, but that's still in the history of philanthropy, which goes back to the founding of this country in the United States, that's still relatively new. And um, the current COVID-19 pandemic that we're all living through, our team is seeing a level of collaboration and coordination among foundations and the communities that they are trying to serve. So um, that is very different from, say, 50 years ago. When you heard the term philanthropist, you thought a white industrialist who left his wealth and uh, some person 
decided where all that money was going to go to. So is it fair to say that the more information that's become available to more people, the more people can be really planful, thoughtful, informed philanthropists, and it almost puts a responsibility on their shoulders to be just that. Yeah, that is a great way to characterize it. Um, and I think that's that's the positive side, right? We have the opportunity to be more thoughtful, to be more planful. The flip side of that is, oh God, there's so much noise, where do I start? And and so that's kind of what what our team is trying to do is to be a source of independent information so that the sector gets all the benefit that you just described of better informed, more strategic, you know, more intentional. But hopefully we do some of the legwork so that more donors don't have to deal with just what can be a tremendous amount of noise. And sometimes that noise is so overwhelming that it it can prevent people who want to help from acting. Well, It's a great service that you're providing, particularly at a time like this, when there is so much need out there. And philanthropy is a certainly one big source of the solution. So I'm going to pivot to talking about COVID-19. Here we are in 2020, and it's kind of been um, defining our year thus far. Uh, Is CHIP helping funders think about how to impact COVID-19? I assume this is a pretty big topic that you and your team are talking about. It is. From the very beginning at CHIP, one of the areas that we have always worked on and mobilized our team for is disaster philanthropy, crisis grant making. Um, In the past, that included the recession in 2008 through 10, um, the earthquake in Haiti, um, other natural disasters. So um, once the scale of the pandemic Um, was clear, it it was a no-brainer for our team, only with a reach and scale that, at least in the life of the center, was unprecedented. Um, It it truly is affecting communities and individuals globally. So um, we did what we've always done, which is spend some time trying to understand who's affected and how, who are some of the nonprofit organizations that can show how philanthropy can help. And, um, and we quickly, um, as best as we could, put that together to create a public, a free public guidance. Uh, it's on our website and it's called COVID-19 Pandemic, How Can I Help? And it walks through um, what the urgent needs are and how those of us who are lucky enough to have some philanthropic money, um, again, whether it's $5 or a billion dollars, what are the ways that are emerging that are... Um, that can really uh, address the situation and, and help people. And for example, I, I believe you you outlined um, in the first phase of immediate relief, there are four areas that we need to address immediately. And so you're very specific and it's very tangible and actionable to your point. What we found uh, having looked at other crises is that typically um, communities go through four phases in disaster response, and they are the immediate relief and response, which is what we're in currently still, then communities move on to a period where it's recovery and then rebuilding. Um, And then finally, there's sort of uh, risk mitigation and planning, because there there will always be another crisis. It won't be like what we've known before. That's sort of the definition of a crisis, is that it's, it's something that overwhelms the systems we have in place, but those communities who learn from prior 
disasters and then build in better, smarter risk mitigation plans and preparedness efforts, they become more resilient. No surprise what those countries, particularly in uh, Asia, that had had similar pandemics that already had in place public health mechanisms around taking temperatures and um, contact tracing, and they had experienced it firsthand. So that's why we always think about disaster response and crisis grant making as um, having these phases. And um, for us, the first piece of guidance we knew we had to get out there is how can funders respond to the urgent needs brought on by COVID-19? Yeah, that's great. And we'll, we'll come back to your thoughts on kind of the other phases of disaster recovery in a little bit. Um, but first, I happen to know that you have two team members who are infectious disease and public health specialists. Uh, it's great to have during a pandemic, it's great to have someone like that on your staff. How did they help to shape your thinking? So one of them is a, a colleague of ours, Carol McLaughlin, and she is um, an epidemiologist, a pediatrician. She's one of CHIP's founding team members. And so one way um, that expertise has informed our work, not just in health, is that how we think about evidence and how we think of community well-being, that has been shaped by colleagues like Carol. But in addition to Carol, who is still a, um, a senior advisor on our team, we have colleagues like Han Law, who is our director of applied research. Um, she teaches in the master's in public health program. And, you know, when the crisis happens to be a global public health threat, to have people like Han and Carol mean we don't have to spend weeks getting up to speed. They were following all of these indicators. Um, they knew before it hit the United States in the way it has, they already understood what was going on. Um, they were familiar with some of the historical um, situations in the U.S. and outside the U.S. And so we really could hit the ground running because we didn't have to catch up. And then we could, we could move on to not just understanding what was going on in the best practices, but what's really actionable, what are some of the ways that nonprofits can help? Well, that's great. I, I do want to ask you a specific question around an area that CHIP has done a lot of research into and has provided a lot of really great insight on. And it's, um, it's a topic that you're hearing a little bit more about these days, and that is mental health during this COVID crisis. So you've talked a lot about the importance of supporting mental health in general, but also during COVID. Can you share some thoughts on that? About a month or two um, before our whole team had to start working remotely because of COVID-19, we had released something called Health in Mind, and that is um, the result of years-long effort to really understand how can philanthropy address mental health and addiction. That was a really important piece of work because, in a way, mental health and addiction are associated with a lot of the other social impacts that people are trying to address, whether it's homelessness or educational outcomes. There's a lot of intersection between a mental health and addiction and, um, and other things people care about. And yet, if you look at 
how much of foundation giving is going to brands flagged for mental health and addiction, it's very, very little, like tiny compared to the impact. So that's what we were doing before COVID-19 hit. Now, COVID-19 hits and you've got an almost perfect storm because how do we prevent the spread? Well, social distancing. And what does social distancing mean? It means that people are isolated from each other and businesses are needing to close, have closed. And that combination of social isolation and the economic harm caused by businesses closing, that has taken issues of mental health and addiction, which were already in some communities of epidemic proportions, particularly in the United States. It made it worse for some of the folks who were already experiencing that. And then all these other people who weren't in a pre-COVID situation, they weren't at risk. Now, because of the social isolation and because of the economic negative impact, now we have more people at risk for experiencing negative mental health conditions and addiction. So um, that's one of the reasons why we made sure to highlight in our COVID-19 guidance how very important it is to address mental health issues and um, substance use disorders you know, many of the public health specialists that we've worked with and, and folks who are already studying behavioral health um, talk about there's this second wave um, of health issues, and it's all associated with mental health and substance use disorders. I'm glad we highlighted it because it's important for people to think about as they think about where to put their dollars to be part of the solution. Tremendous need right now because of COVID. more than one disaster in your time, and you've helped funders think about how to respond. How does giving around COVID-19 compare to giving around other disasters in the past? There are memes out there about how frequently the word unprecedented is used in this situation. It is, it's the sheer scale of it. And what that means is with other disasters, compared to COVID-19, they were geographically isolated which means there were always people who were relatively unaffected in some other part of the world or in some other community. And so because they were unaffected, they were able to fairly easily help. The difference with COVID-19 is it's affecting all of us. Those who want to help are often also dealing with the uncertainty of their financial situations or children who are home from school and, and who might have family members who have tested positive or um, who are in the hospital. And so that has made it tougher in some ways um, because those who need help and the potential helpers were all affected in some way. Um, and, and that is unlike any of the um, disasters or crises that our team has covered in the past. That's a great point. You know, yesterday's funder becomes today's recipient of funds. And it's interesting you say that, Kat, because I had an opportunity to chat with Casey Marsh, who's at Feeding America the other day for a podcast. And, you know, she kind of made that point as well. She said, you know, 
we have so many different people that we're serving now, people who are finding themselves in a food insecure position. And just months before, they were giving us donations. So it's a very interesting situation to find yourself in. One of the things I think about as I think about this disaster is because it has come with a huge economic impact. You've seen the markets chop, you've seen tremendous economic uncertainty, and all of that tends to also dampen philanthropic giving, except for with donor advised funds. We've been so thrilled and we're not alone. I get a chance to chat with heads of other donor advised funds, community foundations, et cetera, People who have donor-advised fund accounts tend to think about that money differently. And even though it's a very difficult situation in this economy, in the markets, they're giving more than they've ever given before. Our giving is up 50% year over year, and that's off a record year. And it's inspiring to see the kind of giving because we need it so badly at this point. One of the pieces of guidance that we gave in in our um, in COVID nineteen pandemic, how can I help? It wasn't about cause areas, although we do talk about things like making sure that um, emergency food is available and addressing health and mental health issues, but also just how very important it is at this time to do whatever we can to enable money to flow freely to where it is urgently needed. And I think that's one of the reasons why you're seeing the kind of growth that you're seeing, even with the uncertainty. One of the benefits of donor advised funds is that it is there and can be deployed very quickly. Recently, um, several foundations have made pledges to increase beyond the 5% that they normally would. So that speaks to how far reaching the negative impact is of COVID-19 that even with the uncertainty that people are experiencing, even with the fact that it is affecting people who may never have thought, never been affected by a crisis like this, that uh, money is flowing and people are thinking about how can I be more generous at this time? Because the need is so obviously great. Agreed, agreed. Now we've talked a lot about COVID, uh, but today is June 15th, and in the past few weeks after George Floyd's death, there has been a much greater focus on racial injustice in this country. And so in light of this, I'd be remiss not to ask about how CHIP has approached helping funders deal with issues around social and economic justice. Yeah, so um, if you look at the work that CHIP has done over its 13, 14 years, whether it's addressing education, livelihoods and employment, housing insecurity, et cetera, the broad context for the reason that philanthropy is needed gets to issues of structural inequities. And so some of the issues that are now in the headlines and trending in Twitter, that's been the context of our work almost from the beginning. The difference now is, I think, because it's so top of mind, I think there is an increased opportunity for more and more funders to build in strategies to dismantle that structural inequity into their grant making. I think there is an openness now 
that uh, hopefully means greater impact in the future. And because we see that openness, our team is working to make more explicit those opportunities where issues of racial injustice, equity, inclusion, um, to make that more explicit in our work and, and to be able to point to what are some of the upstream um, opportunities. Uh, you know, a lot of philanthropists focused on the direct service addressing the gaps, but if you can address the more um, structural and systemic issues, then you don't have to support as many direct service programs. And so that, that's a shift. And, and that is something that we are, we're going to be paying a lot more attention to making more explicit in our guidance. That's terrific. You know, we've talked about COVID. We've talked about the more recent intensified focus, I would say, on um, racial and economic injustice. There's a lot to focus on right now. But you and I know that the needs tomorrow will also be there. So we're in the immediate response phase for COVID, for example. There will be three other phases. That fourth phase of learning and figuring out what to do with those learnings is an important one as well. So th there's both immediate needs and long-term needs. And as a philanthropist, how should I think about that when creating a high-impact giving plan? What should I consider? One way that that we've seen is helpful in crisis grant making is to think about your portfolio and to think about a percentage that you would focus on the immediate needs versus some you might want to set aside for future needs. And that's because people refer to it as the novel coronavirus. Novel because we haven't seen it before, which means to your point, there is a ton of learning still about what's going to help when, and even the nature of the disease, of the condition. So like a financial portfolio, right? To give yourself the opportunity to take advantage of some of the things that we haven't learned yet that might lead to tremendous positive social impact, right? So right now, absolutely, if you have the funds and you can save lives, save those lives now. And you know what? Once, for example, we have a vaccine, which is still a ways away, um, we will have smarter resources going for all of those stages, because that's what we need. We need smart money at every stage. Well, that's a great point. And that's probably a great message to leave on is the need is heavy now and will continue to be heavy. So give now and continue to give in the future. Kat, you've given us a lot to consider. I thank you so much. Let me ask you if people want to learn more from CHIP, I assume they go to your website to do so? You can um, go to our website. It's www.impact.upenn.edu. You will find lots of free resources. We make a big commitment to public education that will hopefully help you make a, uh, a bigger impact in your communities. And for those of you who are um, really committed to practicing high impact philanthropy, you'll also find information on our funder education programs. That's fabulous. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Kat. Thank you, Jane. It was my pleasure. And thanks to our audience for listening. I hope that you found today's conversation to be helpful. And I hope that you all find the value in giving. <laughs>